0: I find myself discouraged at the time I was thinking about discouragement. And the reason for my discouragement, I was sitting in a room, watching the National Weather Service issue a severe storm and flash flood warning for the islands of Kauai, uh, Oahu, and Maui. (laughs) Which, under normal circumstances, would not trouble me, but since we were on Maui at the time, it became much more personal. And statements like this that we heard from the locals, you know, this is the first rain we've had in nine months. (laughs) In fact, this is the worst storm we've had in two and a half years. You know, we're expecting five and a half inches of rain over the next 36 hours. But you know what? Two to three weeks from now, this island is going to be so green, it's going to be beautiful. (laughs) And I thought, well, you know what? We're not going to be here in three weeks. You know, it could have easily led to discouragement. And being a Christian does not automatically make one immune to such feelings as despair or imminent failure. So once again, I make this statement, I think with clarity and certainty, we are all susceptible to discouragement. How about you? Have you been discouraged recently? Coming after uh, Thanksgiving where we spend time with uh, family and relatives of other sorts and kinds, Sometimes those uh, experiences are anything but. And uh, so we realize that discouragement is something that uh, we, we all can, uh, you know, maybe use a lesson on uh, how to deal with, uh, how to find some type of uh, understanding through the, in the midst of all of it, and how to be encouraged in the midst of our uh, discouragement. You know, a little appreciated uh, truth is uh, some of God's choicest servants have undergone times of severe despondency and despair. I want you to consider Moses as an example who was burdened by the weight of a rebellious and grumbling people when he cried out to God with these words. He said, why hast thou been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all these people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which thou didst swear to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to, to give all these people? For they weep before me saying, give us something to eat. I alone am not able to carry all these people because it is too burdensome for me. So if, I have, so if you are going to deal with me thusly, please kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight. And don't let me see my own wretchedness. Can you imagine? It's like, you know what, I can't deal with this. And God, if I found favor in your sight, can you just kill me now and take me home? I mean, there's a sense of discouragement there, just a little bit. Following Israel's defeat at Ai, Joshua said, Oh God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to obey you and dwell beyond the Jordan. I mean, have you really brought us out of Egypt to turn us over to these people so that they could kill us out here in the wilderness? He was a little bit discouraged. Elijah, same thing, he knew to despair. He was plunged from the height of success to the pit of despair following his dramatic victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He said as he was fleeing into the wilderness where he despaired for his life, he said, It is enough, O God, please take my life, for am I not better than any of my fathers? Hezekiah, the same thing. We read of Job cursing the day that he was born and Jeremiah who was known as the weeping prophet. And even our Lord was described as a man of sorrows. ...and acquainted with many griefs. Nor did the Apostle Paul, as we're learning... ...escape the throes of discouragement. As we've been going through the book of Acts... ...and we're in the opening, cha- opening verses of chapter 18... ...we find that he was at a low point in his grueling ministry. The second ministry journey had been arduous... ...having traveled through Asia Minor. He was strengthening the churches. He crossed the Aegean Sea to the Greek mainland. His healing of a demon-possessed girl in Philippi... ...if you recall, sparked a riot... In fact, the people that were using this gal to make tremendous amount of money beat Paul and Silas and threw them into prison without any trial or hearing whatsoever, unjustly imprisoned. They were beaten. They were thrown into prison. In the midst of all that, there was a tremendous, devastating earthquake in which God freed him, and yet he did not escape. He stayed there. He stayed behind, and he was freed ultimately because he was a Roman citizen who had been unjustly uh, imprisoned. So he left there and he went into Athens, the city of Athens. And if you recall, with a a brilliant defense of the Christian faith, at the end of all of it, and we studied it the last time we were together, brilliant defense of why should we believe in the claims of Christ? What makes Jesus Christ different than anybody else that ever walked the face of the earth? Or Christianity different than any other religion that that is expounded in the world that we live? A brilliant defense. And at the end of all of it, they said, eh, that was interesting. Maybe we'll hear again from you sometime. Only a handful of people, we're told, received the message that he had delivered that day. And scholars to this day claim it was one of the most brilliant defenses of the Christian faith as we went through and analyzed it. It was tremendous, and yet there was no response. And so we come to Acts chapter 18. And at the beginning of this, as we, as we learn, he, is, he has left the city of Athens. He is going to the city of, of, of Corinth, which is a 53-mile walk. In 53 miles, he had plenty of time to feel sorry for himself. He had plenty of times to fuel the discouragement in his life as to, man, that was the best sermon I ever gave. It was brilliant. And nobody responded. 53 miles to criticize himself, critique his performance, to go through you know, what he had said and how he had said it, and whether it was in a good outline form or not, or whether it was a three-point or five-point or seven-point sermon. I mean, he had time to just, just analyze himself to death. Plenty of time to be discouraged. And in chapter 18, we come to a wonderful passage for any of us who have ever wrestled with discouragement. Because in chapter 18, we find that the God of all comfort is encouraging the discouraged. The God of all comfort is encouraging this man at this time in his life when he was going through a tremendous amount of despair and discouragement. So we'll start there in verse 1. After these things, which I just mentioned to you, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius commanded all the Jews to to leave Rome. He came to them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks... But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews were, with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look upon it or after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters." And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. By Paul's day, Corinth had replaced Athens as the leading political and commercial center in, uh, in Greece. Corinth uh, enjoyed a strategic location on the Isthmus of Corinth, which connected the Peloponnesian peninsula from the, with the rest of Greece. If you've ever been there, you know that all the traffic from northern Greece to southern Greece has to go through this particular area. And in fact, it was a 200-mile sail around the peninsula in order to get to the other side where Athens is located. In order to do that, what they tried to do was they would actually take ships out of the harbor and they would roll them across on rollers four miles over the inland so that they would cut out the 200-mile sail. In uh, in 67 AD, Nero began to work on a canal that is now there today, but it wasn't finished until 1893. You know, when I was thinking of being in the construction industry, I was wondering what kind of penalty clauses they had in their contract. (laughs) 1800 years, man, there's some job security right there. So they weren't in a big hurry, but on the other hand, it is done. And if you go there today, you'll see, see where the Corinthian Canal actually cuts through. But in that particular day, they had to go either around or they would go across land, so the smaller ships, they would just pull them uh, across. And as a trade center, Corinth was cosmopolitan. It was largely an unsettled population. There were military people who passed through. There were sailors. There were business people, government officials. And because they had no deep roots in the city, it gave the people an opportunity to promote a very sensual and immoral lifestyle. It was like there was no accountability, no one knows who we are, nobody knows anything about us, we can do anything that we want to do. And it's the kind of temptation that we find in our world today with people who travel a lot, who go to different cities and different places and they conduct themselves, their businesses, and there's, you know, there's no accountability that's there, a sense of accountability. You're on the road, you go to the lobby, you go to the lounge, you go down to get a drink, you do these kind of things, because nobody knows who I am, so I can do whatever I want to do. And so as a result of that type of mentality or mind frame, and obviously I'm not endorsing that, it's just a reality of life, they ended up adopting a very sensual and a very sexual, sexually immoral lifestyle. And in fact, the, the letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 deals with the problem of immorality that was, uh, that was taking place in the city of Corinth at that time. In fact, the word to Corinthianize... ...meant to promote a sexually immoral lifestyle. Uh, when Linda and I were there several years ago when we visited Corinth... ...the tour guide that took us to that particular area... ...told us the story that was true of that day... ...and is still true as far as the history is concerned. But at the Acro-Corinth, the highest point in the city of Corinth... ...there was a temple that was built to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And there were a thousand prostitutes who, lived, who actually lived and worked out of that temple. And they would come down every evening in the evening and they would begin to sell their merchandise which was their bodies. And they they sold it under the guise of this was a religious ceremony. And so if you would give them money, you would follow the prostitutes back up to the temple. You would conduct whatever sexual activity that you wanted to at that place with women, with men, men with men, women with women. And in fact, it's from this city that the Apostle Paul wrote the words that we find in Romans chapter 1. And I'll read those in verse, 20, in verse 18 where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all such ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And the point he was making that even people who don't say they believe in God still have God creating us in his image and likeness, though tainted by sin, gives us a conscience that tells us the difference between right and wrong. And even these people who are playing the religious game knew in the conscience that God has given them, who do we think we are that we're fooling God? But we'll continue to do it as long as we can. And eventually our conscience becomes seared or branded to where we don't even hear that voice of God that's saying, what are you doing? You know this isn't right. Think about that people who do not know nor believe or, or, or ascribe to believe in God still have a sense of moral values of right or wrong. Where does that come from? It comes from God who created us in His image and in His likeness. Though tainted by sin, we still have a conscience that makes us aware of what is right or wrong. We know that if we're walking down the street and I've talked to my neighbor and I've talked to those who claim not to believe in God. I say, you know, what keeps me from just punching you right now? Because if everybody can do whatever they want to do and it feels good as long as, quote, you know, and then it's all, quote, as long as you don't hurt other people. Oh, so there's the God. Well, But who says hurting other people is wrong? And you begin to make them start to think, well, yeah, wait a minute, what is right or wrong? Is it because we have laws? But where do the laws come from? If we were walking down the street and you saw a man beating a woman, there isn't a man that's in here that would say, hey, you know what? There's something wrong with what I see. Or an adult beating on a child you know, without any sense of mercy or, or sense of discipline or, or, or control. It's like, wait, there's something wrong with that. See, what Paul is saying is that, you know what, the sense of ungodliness or unrighteousness that God puts within our conscience. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that we are without any excuse before God. For even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And talk about at a time where, we just mentioned that when he was in Athens, the philosophers of the world would come together and speculate as to what the philosophy of life is. The Epicureans who said, you know what? Eat, drink, and to be merry because tomorrow we die. The world that we live in is the same today. Hey, just enjoy yourself. Please yourself. Have a good time because hey, what's life all about anyway? One day you're going to get old. One day you're going to die. So enjoy yourself while you can. With no sense of accountability to God. The opposite of that is God says, hey, you know, Solomon said, you know what, I'll tell you what, as I look back on life, there's three things everybody better know and understand. Number one, you all better all fear God. You better all obey His commandments. And the third thing you better all understand is that we will give an account of our life before a holy and righteous God. Look at those two opposing philosophies of life. One, no accountability, please yourself. The other, you know what, you better run everything through the fact that you're going to have to answer to God for everything you do, say, and think. Wow. They became, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. As he looked in the city of Athens and the city of Corinth, there were idols all over the place. When we were in the city, when we were in the, the county of Maui. And we looked around at the wood carvings that were there. You know, all of them have to do with idols that are made out to some God. The God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of the sea, the God of waters, the God of this, that, and the other thing. And you just realize how foolish man's heart is. Professing to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of God for the corruptible images that we form with our own hands. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. and In the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of a woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error." And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. As Paul wrote those words, all he had to do was look around at the city in which he found himself in at the moment. To Corinthianize meant to promote that kind of a lifestyle and that type of immorality. Can you imagine as discouraged as he was leaving the city of Athens, how much more discouraging it got when he got to the city of Corinth? Because the whole way there he is thinking, hey, maybe it will be better. Maybe it will be different. Maybe it won't be so bad. Maybe there will be people here that will be more receptive to what God has to say in his truth. That's why when he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. 1 Corinthians 2.3. In 1 Thessalonians 3, seven. he wrote, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith, which we'll talk of more in a minute. But the point that I want to make in the backdrop that I'm trying to give is to help you to understand the frame of mind that Paul was in so that we can identify with them. You know, sometimes we read through the, through, the, through the Bible and we read of people and we read of men and women and somehow there's not that identity with them. It's like they're different than we were. You know, they're these great saints and they didn't experience the same things that we experienced. They didn't experience the same temptation, the same struggles, the same difficulties, the same sense of despair and despondency and discouragement. But in reality, yes, they did. And the greatest apostle that ever walked the face of the earth found himself as discouraged as you and I have ever been. And it's through that time that the God of all comfort will comfort him in the midst of his discouragement. And the same way that he comforted Paul, that same comfort is available to you and I today when we go through... These times of discouragement. So we're going to take a look at those one at a time and hopefully learn something from it that we can apply to our life during those times of discouragement, those times of of struggles. And the first thing that I want to point out to you is that notice to encourage the discouraged, the first thing that, that God did was he brought him the companionship of friends. The companionship of friends. We go back to Acts chapter 18. We're introduced at a time of personal weakness and fear and much trembling... as the words that he used himself to the Corinthians. He arrived in a city that was known, as I mentioned, for its pursuit of sensual pleasures. It was in this city of over 200,000 people. that Stop and think about it. This was so rampant of what was going on. And Paul was sent to that city to preach to the Corinthians the message of repentance... He had just told the Athens that God's desire for men everywhere is that men... You know, we wonder what God's desire is for mankind. That man would repent. Which means turning from sin and turning to God. That man would do an about face. The Corinthians who were pursuing a sexual, immoral, and sensual lifestyle. He was there with the message. Stop doing that. Turn from sin and turn back to God. And seek his forgiveness. That was the message that he was sent. The same message that you and I have been given to share with those around around us. God's desire for you and for me is to repent from sin and turn to God for forgiveness. That was the message. Now, you know what? You can't preach that message if you're discouraged, you can't preach that message if you're in despair because you already know how it's going to be received. No one wants to hear they need to turn from sin and turn to God. What people want to hear is, hey, eat, drink, and be married, for tomorrow you die. Have a good time. Enjoy yourself. Don't worry about the consequences, because there isn't going to be any. Just do what you want to do whenever you want to do it. That's what people want to hear. But that's a lie from the pit of hell. The truth is, God's message to people is repent. Turn from sin and turn to God and throw yourself upon His mercy, and you will find mercy. That was the message he was sent. He was sent to tell them that God would forgive them, but there was only one way it could happen. And that was through the only Lord and the only Savior, Jesus Christ. But in order to accomplish that task, he had to first be encouraged in the midst of his discouragement. And so what God does, he introduces them to a couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla were told from this particular text... ...he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus in verse 2... ...having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla... ...because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. And so we're introduced to this couple, these friends that will become friends of his... ...very close friends. In fact, it's a very unique arrangement that they have here, a very unique couple. And Over half the time that their names are mentioned in Scripture... Priscilla's name comes first, which is highly unusual for that particular culture that a woman would take preeminence over a man in any type of setting. And yet God recognized the important role that Priscilla played in the ministering of the gospel and in the building up of the church. And so she was given the recognition that God felt she rightly deserved. And so that that, that in and of itself stirred up the culture. And so when they looked at that, we're told that Priscilla and Aquila became fellow workers in Christ Jesus... And in Romans 16, 3 said that they even risked their own lives for Paul. They were very close friends and they were towers of strength, as we will see. Now, think about the very difficult and evil circumstances that are involved here. Anti Semitism in Rome under Claudius is what sent them from Rome to Corinth. And I want to make this point very clear because oftentimes in life, we think that the enemy is winning. There's some evil intended person in our life who has done something and they're getting away with it. And we think that somehow or another that, that becomes the source of our discouragement. God, how could you let them get away with that? I can't believe that has happened. You know this isn't right. You know this isn't fair. But let me just tell you something that we've already learned and remind you of this fact. God is not limited by the evil intentions of man. In fact, God does his best work by turning that which is evil intended... ...into that which is good. We've already saw that in great detail in past messages... ...but the reality needs to come out at this time as a reminder... ...because many of us get discouraged... ...when we think that somebody's getting away with something. Listen, no one's getting away with anything. God holds every person accountable for everything that they do... ...but I want you to see the irony in this and the beauty of this. Claudius became an instrument of God... Through his anti Semitism, by kicking Priscilla and Aquila and other Jews out of Rome to where they found themselves in, the, in Corinth, and they were used by God at a strategic time to lift the spirits of one of his greatest spokesmen that ever walked the face of the earth. Is that beautiful or what? Only God could do that. Little did Claudius know that that evil intention of his became the greatest effect as far as God was concerned in building up the Apostle Paul, who was at the point of his life where he was so discouraged that he didn't want to continue on any longer. Isn't that great? So if you are discouraged because someone's getting over, no one's getting over, why don't you now use where you are because God is now going to turn that evil into something good and something positive. Stop feeling sorry for yourself and see what God has for you in this new situation that you find yourself in. It's great. Aquila and Priscilla became the greatest uh, source of encouragement in the life of Paul during his time of discouragement. It's just a reminder to me that guess what? Man will never beat God. I don't care. You can't outthink him. You can't out strategize him. You can't outplan him. You can't outmaneuver him. No matter what you do, he'll trumpet every time. It's like you make this move. It's like playing checkers with, you know, it's like I play checkers with my grandson. I love it because that's the only kid I can beat. <laughs> you know, that's great. Hey, let's play checkers. Come here. Let me show you. Let me work you. You know, and then every now and then, you know, he'll come up with something and, and uh, it'll, be a, it'll be a great move. In fact, the only time he's ever beat me, he reminds everybody to this day. He went to bed one night. The first thing he said to his mom wasn't "Good morning," it was "I beat Papa last night in checkers." It was a beautiful. I can imagine what his dreams were, man. Those big old pieces, probably big old checkers, and he just crushed me. But you know, it's kind of like sometimes that's the way it is with God. We think we can outmaneuver him, we think we can outthink him, we think we can outplay. You know what? Don't even try. Don't even go there. That's what happened here. Priscilla and Quilla. Now, notice this: how the three of them get together. He came to them, speaking of Paul, he went to Aquila and Priscilla because he was of the same trade and he stayed with them and they were working for by trade they were tent makers. You notice how they got together? They, beca- they were co-workers. And I like this because the, the, the source of discouragement for many of us is our job situations. And the encouragement that I get from this is that we all need to find in our job situations godly people who can empathize with the challenges that we have where we are. For accountability, for source of strength and encouragement, as iron sharpens iron, the Bible says, so one brother sharpens another. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. To get together to stimulate one another, to encourage one another, to encourage the discouraged in the midst of difficult circumstances. It is difficult to be a Christian in a world that is hell-bent on destroying itself through self-pleasure. There's nothing easy about being a Christian in a dark environment, but where to be light and where to be salt. That's the reality of all of it. We need to find that one person or two people or a handful of people and don't be deceived because good, bad company corrupts good morals. We need to recognize the importance of being in an environment where other people know our temptations. As I mentioned before, for those who travel, the temptations for those who travel are unique. Compared to those of us who don't have to travel that much. You know, when I deal with uh, athletes, professional athletes who are traveling all the time, I encourage them the same thing. Hey, you know what, you need to get together with some guys that, you know, that you're going to have Bible study together and prayer together and accountability together and be there for one another. Because the temptations are there and many of those snares can easily envelop a person who is struggling in their life. So we had to be there to build each other up. And you know what? And Paul, knowing that, understanding that, immediately sought out Priscilla and Aquila because he probably heard that they were believers. And if they hadn't been a believers or at the, that point in their life, he had heard that they owned a leatherworking or a leathermaking or tent making business And that he knew he could go to them and find a job. I personally believe that he knew they were Christians, that he went to them because he was looking for a place to work, because he had a trade, and the trade was he was a leather worker or a tent maker. And the reason that he was a tent maker was because even the rabbis understood if you don't teach your son to work, you teach him to steal. And that's good advice today. If you don't teach your son to work, you teach him to steal. That work ethic was ingrained in him. And so he knew that he could go and find a job there. But the purpose of his job was to provide for his livelihood. But his purpose in life was to tell people about Jesus Christ. He needed to eat. He needed a place to stay. He needed to take care of himself physically. But he knew his greater purpose in life was he just used his business as a, as a platform to tell people about Jesus. Jesus. You know, it's so funny because I run into a lot of people who believe the two should never mix. I go to work to make a living and then I go over this way to try to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And you know what? That's foolishness. Because the greatest impact you'll ever have are on the people that see you in action every day. And so at our workplace, it should be our primary place other than our family to be able to share the, the love of God with people that we come in contact with every day to tell him the message of repentance, to tell him of hope that's found only in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior of the world. There's no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. And so when I think about the whole work environment or this place of business, it was great because we see Aquila and Priscilla, godly people who owned a tent-making or leather-making business. Paul naturally went to them. He lived in their apartment, which in that culture was behind the shop in which they did their business. And then he would go out and he would use that as a basis For where he would go and teach the word of God. The business as any of you have ever traveled to Europe understand that businesses are conducted early in the morning. They take several hours off in the afternoon. Then they go back and conduct business in the evening. So you get up at 6. You work from 6 to maybe noon or 6 to 11 o'clock. You have lunch from 11 to 2 or siesta time. You take a nap and at 2 o'clock till late at night you go back and conduct business again. And so what Paul would do is he'd get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. He would go to work, leather maker, tent maker. And then he would go out and he would teach people about Jesus Christ from 11 to 2 or whatever. And then he'd go back and work again. Man, this guy was putting in 16 hours a day. And he he knew the grind. But he felt it was well worth it. And as is always the case, in the midst of that 16-hour day grind, God sent to him Silas and Timothy, old friends... To further encourage Paul. Now the interesting thing is they came with news that the church in Thessalonica was doing great. That they were keeping the faith. That they were walking firmly with the Lord. And also on top of that they came. And I'll tell you what. There's nothing better than friends who come bringing cash. You know what I mean? That makes you smile every time. It's just like friends who come bringing cash. It's like they came with an offering Of cash, so that Paul no longer had to go to work to support himself, but they brought the cash so that he, as he says himself, he says he was staying with them, same trade, and went on in verse 4, says he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now notice, that was his grind, that was a daily routine. But we're told... But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now, what that meant was that he had previously. This is what he did: got up in the morning, worked, taught in the afternoon, worked at night. Got up in the morning, worked, taught in the afternoon, worked at night. When Paul and Tim, when Paul, when they showed up and they began to give him, they gave him money or an offering that was given to him. He was then able to say, "Okay, now I don't have to work. I can devote myself wholly to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God." Now he says he held himself to the Word. And what that means is literally this. He understood that in exchange for God meeting his needs in the way that he did, that there was an accountability not only to God, but the people who had sent the money to him, that he would dedicate himself to the study of the word of God and the preaching and the presenting of God's truth to people. He understood there was no higher calling in his life. And so some of us wonder at times, well, you know what, churches, you know, they're always asking for money. There's this, that, and this going on, that going on, you know. It's, it's like, always asking for money. Hey, you know what, but let's be real about it. People need money to survive. And in this particular case, there are those who, bottom line, they were devoting themselves to teaching and preaching the word of God... And they were worthy of double honor, the Bible says in First Timothy and Second Timothy. They were rightly given the money that God had given to those people around them to support them for the work of ministry. You and I cannot full-time do the things that other people who are in a full-time voc- vocation can. They can't do it unless we help them by giving from the resources that God has entrusted to us to share with them. And so when Roger stands up or someone says, hey, you know what, we've got missionary families who it's Christmas time. You know what, there's nothing that will put a smile on anybody's face than a note saying we care about you, we love you, and by the way, here's some cash. Amen. <laughs> it's like, you know, there you go. So that was Roger. <laughs> so, <laughs> But, the, but, the, but the, the reality of it is, is that that's just the truth. And the pattern that we see is to free up God's spokesman to find time to study, prepare, and to preach the word. My partner and I have a business. I don't have the time that I would, that I would have if this is all that I did for a living. Uh, because there are people out there, you know, you've asked me to do things, and sometimes I haven't been able to do it. And it's disappointing because people don't understand that you know I have to make a living like you have to make a living. And you know it becomes time management, how you juggle all the balls and do all the things you need to do... But the reality of it is, is that Paul understood that there was nothing more important than preaching and teaching the word of God. And you know why? Because people cannot come into a right relationship with God without the word of God being preached or proclaimed. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There will be no one saved, no one in heaven who hasn't heard of God's plan of forgiveness through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is God's method. He held himself to the word. It was his love. It was his passion. I want you to think about this. Four hours hours a day, six days a week, and oftentimes seven, for 18 months, he preached the word of God. 2,340 hours of instruction. He loved the word of God, and his audience couldn't get enough of it. He dedicated himself. He lived what God taught. And the basic was this. Hey, you preach the word and I'll get people there. You know, it's the old, if you build it, they will come. God's God's response is, if you proclaim the word, I'll get the audience to hear it. You do your part, I do my part. It's a beautiful symmetry of how God uses man to accomplish things in his kingdom. Paul definitely was encouraged by the companionship of godly friends. Perhaps you are struggling in your life. Because you don't have godly friends. You need to find a godly friend. Be a godly friend. Understand the importance of friendship. Because don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And if you're discouraged now, you ain't seen nothing like the discouragement and following after the counsel of the ungodly and the wicked ways of the world. God says, be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The second thing is, is that he found encouragement through the blessing of converts. And in Acts 18, notice in verse 5, it says, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Notice this. He was testifying to the Jews that Jesus was and is God's only Savior of the world. And yet, as was often the case, many in, the Corinth, um, many in Corinth, in their Jewish, in the Jewish community, rejected it. In fact, the word resisted. Notice what it says. And when they resisted, the word resisted meant to line up in battle array. It wasn't just, oh, we're glad to hear from you like they did in Athens. Oh, that was interesting. You know, but you're a babbler. You're a bird picker. You know, pick up this, that, and the other. Throw it at us. But they were saying, hey... We resist this message, and we will fight you as if it is a battle of significant proportion. You will not, and we will not allow you to tell people that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. We will not allow that to happen. They resisted, and notice what they did, and they blasphemed. They cursed the name of Jesus Christ. And you know what Paul did? He shook out his garments in front of them. Remember, we had learned that any time a Jew went into Gentile land, before they walked back on Jewish soil, they would take off their sandals and they would dust off the sand from their feet because they didn't want to uh, bring in Gentile dirt into God's promised land. He shook out his garments in front of them. And I want you to notice what he said. He says, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean before God. You are responsible. And I am responsible For how I respond to the message of God. The message is this. You are a sinner. You are separated from God. You're on the way to hell. You are condemned already. There is no hope for you. In anything good you think you can do. None whatsoever. All your efforts are as filthy rags. The only hope for you and for me. Is that you believe what I say. That I sent Jesus Christ into the world. My beloved son. To die on the cross in your place. To shed his blood for your sins. Three days later I raised him from the dead. To prove that he is the savior of the world. That he conquered death. That he's able to forgive sin. That he's able to give eternal life. And the only way that you will find forgiveness. Is to believe and to trust in him. As your Lord and savior. There is no other hope in any other way. That is the message that he shared with them. They rejected that message. They resisted that message. And they were held accountable to God because of what they chose to do in rejecting Jesus Christ as God's Savior to the world. Every person who will be in hell will be there because they have chosen to reject God's mercy and his forgiveness found in the person and the work. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of what he's done for us. He has been given a name highly above every other name. That at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess these Lord to the glory of God. But unfortunately that will be the last act that multitudes of people will do. Before being condemned into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Bow now or bow later. But if you bow now. Those who receive him. To them he gives the right, the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. You see, what Paul was saying was, I am clean and that I have shared with you what God has entrusted me to share. That is, there is only hope in one name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now that you don't want to hear, I will move down the street and I will share that message with the Gentiles who will be more receptive to what I have to say but you will be held accountable for God to how you respond to the message. Do you realize that you also and I will be held held accountable by God for how we respond to the same message? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Or have you rejected God's offer of forgiveness and mercy and the only Savior the world has ever known, the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, he moved down the street and Crispus and Titus Justice, a worshiper of God who yet did not know how to find forgiveness with God, worshipped God, the God of Israel, identified with the God of Israel, but yet did not know how to be made right with him, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and accepted him as his Lord and Savior. And it says, in Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And so we have Titius Justice and Crispus are given as examples of transformed wives. Men who were searching and seeking truth and God said, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. Whoever seeks God will never be disappointed because God's not far from any of us. He had already told his audience at Athens, all you've got to do if you're running from God, all you've got to do is stop, repent, and turn around and God will be right in your face because Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost God is in hot pursuit of you and I so that you know that he loves you that you know that you can find forgiveness in him so even when we're yet sinners Christ died for us God loves people and he's in pursuit of people by using those who have come to faith in Christ as maybe some of us have to go and tell the world that God's message to them is the same as it was then repent turn to the Lord Jesus Christ believe upon his name and you too shall be saved these are the examples that are given. You know, I can't put into words, you know, how difficult at times it is to invest your life in the lives of people. The countless hours on the phone, the countless times that you meet, you know, the broken heart, the tears, all that goes along with being involved in the lives of people and not seeing any result in a positive way. Many of you know because you do the same thing and it gets so discouraging at times. It's like, Lord, you know what? You know, if, if I found favor in your sight, you know, take me out now. It's like, you know, I'm ready, absent from the body, present with the Lord. It's like, man, these people are weighing me down. If you've ever been there or felt that you understand what Paul was going through, it's like, and so God throws him a bone, basically. says, here, nod on this for a little bit. Here's a couple of people that have come to faith. Just in the midst, I cannot tell you how many times in the midst of those discouraging times in my life, all I get is an email or I get a letter or a phone call or a note that says, I just want to let you know that my husband came to faith in Jesus Christ from listening to a tape. That our marriage was restored because of the encouragement that you gave us to turn from sin and to turn to God and to seek forgiveness. It's like, oh, it's all that it takes. You know what? One person coming to faith in Christ makes it all worthwhile. If all the angels of heaven rejoice, one, son, one, one sinner repents. You know what? That's all that I need to keep me going. One, as I said, one person who turns from sin and turns back to God. Man, I'll tell you what, that's all I need. And at the times of those discouragement, God is so faithful and generous to just throw out a little note or a little card or like you guys put the letters and you read it and you go, oh man, you know what? Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil was never in vain. That God uses the preaching and proclaiming of God's truth to reach and and penetrate hearts. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That God uses the preaching of the word of God to penetrate with the Holy Spirit the heart of those who hear to bring about repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. See, the enemy wants God's people to become discouraged and to quit. I'm reminded that in this story, there was a man who was shoveling snow from his driveway when two boys carrying snow shovels approached him. The guy said, hey, shovel your snow for you, mister. Only ten bucks. The guy looked at him and said, I'm I'm already shoveling my snow. Why would you think that I would want somebody to shovel it for me? He goes, well, that's what we always ask people. That's when we get our most work from people that are halfway through the job and decide to quit. Is that great? Yeah, it's a lot more work than you thought. We'll finish it for you for ten bucks. You know, and, and, and that's just the way that it is. Dr. V. Raymond Edmond used to say to students at Wheaton College, he said, it's always too soon to quit. Charles Spurgeon reminded his London congregation, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. <laughs> Personally, I think they hopped on the back of somebody a little quicker, but, you know, it still makes a point. And the point is this, with eternity at stake, it's always too soon to quit. God has encouraged the discouraged through the companionship of godly friends, the blessing of new converts. And thirdly, you don't want to miss this because when nothing else, nothing else even comes close to this. The companionship of friends, the blessing of new converts, but you know what, there's nothing like the comfort of God himself. Nothing like God's comfort. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in the city. He settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Think about that. Paul's friends, his new ones, his old ones, gave him much encouragement. They brought him cash, which always puts a smile on everyone's face. Uh, He had... ...giving them the the example of, hey, you keep preaching the word... ...and I'll keep saving people from, from sin and from hell. And he saw that in the results of what was there. But you know what? The biggest problem that Paul had was Paul feared success. And what I mean by that is very simple, and that's this. His biggest concern was, now that men and women were coming to faith in Jesus Christ... ...that the enemy and the opposition will now rise up and take notice. You see, when we fly under the radar, nobody cares... But, and I'll give you an example. There are many times where, you know, I'd have two, four, six people that would come to a Bible study for a team, you know, whether it was with the Rams or with the Angels or, you know, the Ducks or whatever. And when a handful of people are coming, you know what, that doesn't really cause much of a stir. But all of a sudden, when you got six people coming, they invite six more, and six more start coming, and 12 more start coming. And at the end of the time, before the Rams moved to St. Louis, we had 50-some people that were coming to Bible study. And you know what, and everybody knew what was going on, and everybody took notice. And you know what, and when people start to see God at work, then the opposition arises. You can just bank on it, and you can count on it. That's just the way that it always works. See, when you fly low under the radar, nobody notices. But all of a sudden, what Paul knew was this: It's like, man, you know what? People are starting to come to faith, and I know what's going to happen. It's like here's the illustration, and this is how my mind thinks. You know that by now, many of you. But being involved in athletics, here's how my mind thinks: It's like being a football. And knowing, all right, just, you know, follow me for a second. It's, it's like being a football and knowing that, man, you know what? The best and worst thing just happened to me. I was just thrown into the end zone where my team, my, my guy caught it, and it's a touchdown. Yahoo! Until the guy goes like this. <laughs> slam dunks that thing man just spikes that thing and you're just as a football you're going this is good news and bad news and here it goes man I'm just going to get spiked into the ground or thrown up into the stands or something's going to it's like yay that's Paul Paul's like man it's like I'm like a football I know God you're bringing people to Christ and people are being saved man there's a lot of commotion going on and I'm about to get spiked into the ground again yahoo you know it's like a little turmoil that goes on there you know but at the same time, you've got to praise God because what God says is, you know what? Don't be afraid to get spiked into the ground. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The principle is this. Paul was worrying about troubles he wasn't facing yet. Even though he may have experienced in the past, he thought he was going to experience the same thing in the future. It's like a football that gets thrown into the end zone and the guy just turns around and hands it to the referee. Been here before, done it. Why get excited? Uh, Coach Knox used to tell guys on the Rams, you know, it's like when they made a good play, act like you've been there and done it before. You know, you got guys now they make a tackle, one tackle the whole game, and you think that you know it was like, <coughs> you know, go out in the middle of the field. And you go, what? And he go, what are you doing? It's like you're getting paid to make a tackle. That's what you do. You broke up the pass, that's your job, that's what you do. You caught the ball, that's what you get paid to do. But if you're only gonna catch one a game and be that excited about it, I'm thinking of replacing you with someone that will catch more than one pass a game. And so it's like, don't get so excited. And what he's saying is, hey, don't be afraid. Don't worry about things that haven't happened yet. The reason most of us are discouraged, we're thinking about things that hasn't happened. I'm sitting there watching the National Weather Report It's going to rain forever. We are all in this place together, and it's going to rain forever. 36 hours will turn into three days, and we're going to have to start building an ark, even though God, you know, he promised he won't flood the earth again. But, you know, you just kind of go through. You're thinking about things that never happen, and yet you're discouraged about them. The sun came back out. Praise God. When Lincoln was on his way to Washington to be inaugurated, he spent some time in New York with Horace Greeley, told him an antidote which was meant to be an answer to the question which everybody was asking him, are we really to have a civil war? In his circuit riding days, Lincoln and his companions, riding to the next session of court, had crossed many swollen rivers. But the Fox River was still ahead of them, and they said to one another, if these little streams have given us so much trouble, how will we ever get across the Fox River? When darkness fell, they stopped for the night at a log tavern, where they fell in with a Methodist presiding elder of the district who rode through the country in all kinds of weather and knew all about the Fox River. They gathered about him and asked him about the present state of the river. He said, Ah, yes, I know all about the Fox River. I have crossed it often and understand it well, but I have one fixed rule with regard to the Fox River. I never cross it till I reach it. Huh? Good, huh? (laughs) Easy to remember, but hard to live out. I'll deal with it when we get to it. But if I never get to it, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time worrying about it. Isn't that what our Lord said when he said, Don't be anxious for tomorrow, for each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't fear today. Allow God to comfort you today. Do not fear He says, Because I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will uphold you and give you victory with my powerful and righteous right hand. Do not fear, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. You keep on speaking, you keep on teaching, you keep on telling people about the fact they need to repent and trust in Jesus Christ, and don't worry about your enemies. Because I am with you and I will not allow them to harm you or to touch you. And anything that happens to any one of us, it's only because God has allowed it for his purposes, his glory, and to build us up in the faith. There is no one that can touch us. We are invincible. We are invulnerable because God is with us. Who can be against us? That's how he built him up. No man will attack you. No man will harm you. And the final reason that he said to him was, hey, and by the way, I got a whole bunch of people in this city who have yet to come to faith in Christ, but I know who they are. You preach the word and I'll bring them to myself. Isn't that great? You see the balance between the two? Personal accountability and responsibility. Those who reject the message are held accountable. The sovereignty of God that says, you know what, I know who mine are. The only thing that's keeping them from coming to me is the fact they haven't heard the message yet. You preach the message. They will receive it. They will receive Christ. They will become children of God. they those who believe in his name. And I know who they are. You don't. You preach it, and I know who they are, and I'll bring them to myself. Isn't that great? I don't know who they are. You don't know who they are. God does, and He says, you know what, don't be afraid to keep on speaking and telling people to repent and to turn to God and to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior because I will reach them through the message and you be the one who proclaim it and we will work together to build up the kingdom of God. Though God is sovereign, He uses us anyway. I don't know why, but that's what He chooses to do. It's a wonderful partnership in bringing people to faith and trust in the only Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have many people in this rotten, sinful, sensual, sexually immoral city who have yet to hear the message, but when they hear it, they will respond and they will trust in Jesus as their Savior. They're sick of living the life they're living. They're sick of the despair. They're sick of the no hope. They're sick of one sexual partner after another, one other putrid thing after another. They're sick of all of it and they need to hear there's hope. That's why you're here. That's why we're all here. That's why we're in our families and in our communities and in our places of business. There are people around you who are sick of living a hopeless life. And they need to hear that there is hope in no one else but Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the world given to man by God. That's our purpose. That's our mission. That's why we're here. God builds us up and and encourages the discouraged by the companionship of godly friends. By the blessing of converts, that we see just a, a little bit of God's work and what happens. Sometimes we'll not see it till we get to heaven, but we praise God and trust Him that what we're doing today has eternal significance and eternal consequences. And you know what? And despite all of that, there's no one who can comfort us better than the God of all comfort. I can try to comfort you. We can try to comfort one another. But you know what? A lot of times it is we need a personal relationship with the God who made us and only He can comfort us at the level where we need to be comforted. The comfort of God. Do not be afraid for I am with you. Many people say, yeah, but God appeared to Paul as a vision in a night. I need God to appear to me. He has appeared to you. He's appeared to you in His Word that has been given to us. It's his vision, the vision from God to every human being. Everything that you and I need to know about God is in here. That's why Paul said preach the word in season and out. There's no way else that man will ever know of God without the preaching of the word of God. As we'll see as he goes through it, we know that God is a God of all comfort and in closing I'll share this with you. Don't be afraid. Stop borrowing trouble. Stop thinking about what may happen a day from now, a week from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Hey, you know what? Each day has enough trouble of its own. Look for God and His comfort today. Stop borrowing trouble. Each day has enough of it on its own. Keep caring for people. Keep ministering to people. Keep sharing with people God's message of hope as they repent from their sin and they turn to God and they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. There is no other name given under heaven by which man can be saved. According to an ancient story, when Leonidas, the noble hero of the Spartans who defended Greece from the Persians, was in battle against thousands of invaders, one of his men said to him, General, when the Persians shoot their arrows, there are so many of them that they darken the sky. Think about it. There's so many of them. When they shoot their arrows, the sky becomes dark. It darkens the sky. The general turned to him and smiled and said, Then I guess we will fight in the shade. And there's no better place to be than in the shadow of God. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous, young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait upon the Lord will gain their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagle. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Teach us, Lord, to wait upon you. Father, thank you for your word. I pray for those who are discouraged that you would encourage them. By the companionship of godly friends, the blessing of converts as they share the word of God and they see that the impact that you make through their lives does make a difference. God, but there's no one who can comfort us like you. You are the God of all comfort who comforts us in our greatest afflictions. And God, the only way we know that is by coming to a personal relationship with you, the one who has created us. And the only way that can happen is if we repent, we turn from sin and we turn to God. And we believe what you say, that the Lord Jesus Christ is exactly that. He is Lord. He is Savior. That He died on the cross in our place. That He rose again three days later, conquering death and sin. And able to offer forgiveness and eternal life for all who believe. God, I pray if there are any there that are here today that do not know you personally. That they would believe your words today. That they would believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, believe upon Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Receive Him and we become children of God to those who believe in His name. Lord, we thank You for that, that You are a God who meets us exactly where we are, a God of all comfort and a source of all of our strength. May we wait upon You, so that when we are weary, You will give us strength. When we are weak, we will find a sense of power and strength in You, that we will not be timid, but we will keep on speaking of the wonderful mercies of God that are found in forgiveness through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank You and praise You in His name. Amen. Next week...